Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As we enter 2023, the healthcare sector will experience key tailwinds, including an aging global population, increased demand for healthcare services, and ongoing inflation issues. Portfolio Manager Alex Gold joins us on the show today to discuss Fidelity Global Healthcare Fund, what themes he's focused on for 2023, and how he's positioning the fund this year. Alex says healthcare stocks have shown resilience in 2022, and he expects this trend to continue. He says he's focusing on good quality businesses as opposed to chasing the hype. He's currently overweight in science tools and medical devices, and the fund is a good mix of defensiveness with companies like Big Pharma and health insurance industries. Alex notes important topics to keep an eye on in 2023 include supply chain issues, inflation, and the influence of global politics and elections. This podcast was recorded on January 20th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start off with the uh, healthcare outlook. What are you seeing for the space? Uh, walk us through what you're looking at. Sure. So you touched upon a few of the key areas and themes um, in your intro there, and they're all very relevant in a very uncertain macro environment. We've seen the healthcare sector and stocks perform in a particularly resilient manner. Um, you know, the index was down about 5% in 2022 versus broader markets down near 20% which is what you would expect from a relatively recession-proof era of the market where people still need to get their drugs, they still need to have their medical treatments and the services which a lot of healthcare companies provide are fairly non-discretionary. So the resilience which we saw in 2022 continued to be the case into 2023. Um, and despite the questions of will we or will we not have a recession, particularly in the US and Europe, I continue to expect those companies to, to grow and perform in a resilient manner. Great. You know, lots of economic forces are impacting all sorts of sectors and markets. So something like, uh, you know, inflation and interest rates, how does that impact the healthcare sector, even, even if it is resilient? Yeah, so inflation is still very much a topic for the healthcare sector. It's um, something the industry has actually had to deal with for many years. You know, healthcare inflation has been um, often two times the rate of normal inflation, so the industry is used to it. Uh, but some companies and some subsectors within healthcare are better positioned than others. So, for example, um, managed care companies, which is the health insurance companies in the US, they're very well um, positioned because they reprice their insurance books and the premiums which they charge their customers every year. And so they price according to the healthcare inflation, which they are seeing. So they, um, they have stable margins and we would say pricing power. That's a similar pitch for actually for the life science and tools sector as well. 
Um, they have pricing power, they manufacture drugs, they run clinical trials, they sell analytical instruments and diagnostic machines to biotech and pharma companies. They're a small part of their overall cost base. So they, again, can pass on their cost inflation to their customers, the pharma and biotech companies. The pharmaceutical and biotech companies themselves, you know, they do have some degree of pricing power, but you have a lot of, um, you know, political and regulatory pressure, which has meant that over the last, you know, five years in particular, you haven't seen high drug price inflation. So they can't pass on significant amounts of inflation, but they have the ability in their cost base to offset inflationary pressures, which has allowed them to keep margins relatively stable. And then the final key subsector is medical devices. This is an area which actually does not have pricing power. Um, the hospitals um, themselves are under pressure. They, they don't pay more for a hip or knee implant or, um, or heart valve stent, for example. Um, so we have seen quite significant gross margin and EBIT margin pressure uh, for a lot of the medical device companies, which have had supply chain disruption, elevated freight costs, elevated raw material input costs, and they haven't been able to pass that on to the hospitals. So that area of the market, medical devices, has seen inflationary pressures. Um, I, I, you know, I wonder if you could go through those different subsectors in a little more detail and what you're seeing from each one. I mean, healthcare is, uh, you know, a, a broad space with lots of different areas. So just kind of making sure that people understand the different areas within that and, and what you're seeing from each one would be great. Sure. So, so you're right. I mean, often when people think about healthcare, you think about J&J &J or the big pharmaceutical or the exciting, you know, small biotech companies. But it, as you say, it is it is much more than that. So at a, at a global level, if we were just to take the index, actually, the healthcare index, about 55% of it is large cap pharmaceutical companies like J&J &J or Pfizer or Merck and large cap biotech companies. So they are 55% of the index. But the, the other 45% is in areas such as life sciencing tools, medical devices, and managed care. And so I'll you know, briefly touch upon each of the dynamics there. So you know, pharmaceutical and biotech companies are you know, very innovative. They spend a huge amount of money, billions of dollars every year on R&D. And the reason they do that is because they obviously want to you know, bring new drugs to market to, you know, particularly for unmet needs, such as Alzheimer's or, um, or other areas of cancer as well. Um, but in order to do that, they have to spend billions of dollars. It can take seven to 10 years to get a drug to market. It can cost up to $2 billion to go through that process. Um, and then you will have a patent for you know 10 years or however long it will be. Um, but they do have this continual pressure to reinvent and regenerate their portfolios as they produce new drugs, which is offsetting drugs which are going off patents. So it's kind of a regeneration game, and they try and offset that through R&D or M&A. And about half their assets and half their free cash flow, which they generate, is usually spent on M&A. So it's really important to understand which pharma companies allocate capital well, both externally, and also which ones are disciplined from an R&D perspective and perhaps have higher returns on their R&D than others. So that's you know one sector which is Interesting, that's clearly the most defensive sector. We saw that in 2020 in particular during COVID. You know, obviously for a lot of industries around the world, um, you know, as, as people stopped spending and everyone had to stay indoors, you know, there was a collapse in their revenues. This was not the case for pharma. Pharma um, was very resilient. People still needed to buy their 
rheumatoid arthritis drugs or other chronic drugs um, on a daily basis. So it's a very resilient sector, um, but uh, you know those are some of the key areas. Um, the life science and tools sector, I think, is really interesting. It's you know I like to think of it as the area that's the picks and shovels uh, for the gold rush. They they supply all the various types of instruments, the analytical machines, the diagnostic equipment, the tests, all the consumables which is needed to either do the R&D research or to manufacture the actual drugs um, or to run the clinical trials to get the drugs to market. There are some great companies within that subsector, such as Thermo Fisher or Danaher, um, you know, really large, significant companies which are serving the big biotech and pharmaceutical companies and providing services for their R&D budget. Um, that's a slightly faster growing area of the market, growing at you know, high single digit growth rates. The next area is the managed care um, part of the market, which is the health insurers. This is companies like United Healthcare, which is one of the biggest companies in the world. You know, they help insure people, particularly in the US, through commercial insurance or through the government programs, so such as Medicaid or Medicare in particular. And the reason these companies are important is because they're trying to be vertically integrated. So they try to also own physician groups or have partnerships with physician groups so that they can direct their patients, which they're insuring, to certain lower cost but high quality areas of the healthcare system. And they believe that if they do that um, in, a, in an efficient manner, they will be able to help reduce the overall cost to the healthcare system. And that's particularly important because in the US, about 18% of GDP is spent on healthcare. So we are at a point where you do need to focus on cost, not just innovation. And then the final area of the market is, is medical devices. Again, historically, this has been an area of kind of high single digit growth. You've got the aging of the population. As you get older, more people need hip implants, more people need valve surgery, more people need hearing aids. It's a, it's a great area of, of the healthcare market. But as I touched upon earlier, they don't have pricing power. So they have to continually try and go into more innovative new areas, come up with new products to try and improve the mix and the um, you know the outcomes of 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 the patients which they're trying to serve. I, I got to ask you about biotech a little bit more because um, for a long time that was the only thing that people like talking about in healthcare, big returns, you know. Uh, um, and and I wonder um, what your view kind of on biotech is. Is, is it still uh, got the hype that it's had in the past, or has that maybe come down a bit in favor of some of these longer term um, uh, subsectors that you've been talking about? Yeah, so biotech is, is fascinating. And I when I was took over the healthcare fund so five years ago, five and a half years ago now, um, you know, I was daunted by biotech. Because you look at the volatility, you look at the sort of the binary nature of those clinical trial readouts, and you think, you know, how can I be on the right side of that? And you know, we've got a team of 13 healthcare experts globally at Fidelity, you know, half the team is specialists in, you know, it who trained in the sciences. And, you know, and, and we can say from looking through those that it is very difficult and we've got probably one of the deepest resources in the industry. Um, it has been a particularly volatile area of the market. In 2015, we saw um, the XBI, which is kind of the, the ETF for the, the small cap biotechs, um, you know, shoot through the roof. It was, you know, doing very well. And then, you know, half a year later, when Hillary Clinton at the time in her presidential of um, debates, you know, and the runoffs for the, the Democrats when she did that tweet, I think it was saying saying about bringing down some of the egregious drug pricing, 
and there was a really heightened scrutiny on some of the, the smaller drug prices, you know, that was a, a almost a catalyst for um, the cost of capital and risk appetite in that sector, the small cap buyers tech sector to go up. Um, and, you know, the sector came back down to earth pretty quickly. And then since then, from 2016 to 2020, we really saw quite muted um, appetite to go into this volatile sector of the market. A lot of the companies are loss making, uh, sort of, you know, proof of concept, you're waiting for these clinical trials to read out. Um, but what we saw during, you know, after COVID was the, the huge monetary and fiscal stimulus that went into the market and the risk appetite, which we saw and, you know, you can see in other areas of whether it's NFTs or Bitcoin, you know, flowed into um, venture capital um, and, and biotech funding. And we saw a huge boom in, in the market. And we got all time highs in, I think it was up until March, April, 2021. Um, the biotech sector did very well, but it wasn't so much because clinical trials were particularly successful. I think the historical hit rates may have been a bit above average, but it was actually because people were more willing to take on that risk and fund some of the, the ideas which people had in these small cap biotech um, stocks. We've seen a complete reversal of that. The tide has gone out on those on that sector as as the Fed has raised rates, and you can now get four and a half percent or whatever it is in your bank account on your cash. You know the, the appetite to invest in sometimes quite speculative binary biotech is completely gone. The sector's down about fifty percent um, from its highs, and you know, I do think a lot of that is due to risk aversion. What is the cost of capital that you are willing to give to, you know, quite volatile loss-making companies? So we actually have zero exposure to that part of the market, but we are exposed, you know, because through the companies in that life science and tool space who are either helping run the clinical trials or manufacture the drugs for those that are successful. So we, you know, I like exposure in a non-binary way um and i think you know for investors i think that's in my opinion a much better way to pay that sort of r d innovation right um what is uh the interest in i guess healthcare over the last couple of years with COVID? you know obviously everyone is is much more familiar with what's going on in the healthcare system and just healthcare in general what has that done maybe for you um in terms of interest in, in investments do you find you know more people are coming to you to talk about healthcare space is there more interest from investors? Do they see the long-term play better than they did maybe before? How has that influenced what you, what you know, what the conversations you're having? Yeah, it's a good question. I think everyone has a heightened appreciation for healthcare. You know, sometimes you may take it for granted. You know, in in England we have the NHS; it's a national public service. Um, but you know, suddenly everyone now knows what a, a swab and a diagnostic test is. We've all been doing that for you know COVID. Um, and the sort of the importance of of vaccines and the fact that we were able to get vaccines to market for COVID so quickly and you know it was unprecedented and the new technologies such as mRNA which were were used to bring those uh, vaccines to market were you know highly innovative as well so I think there's clearly from the public but also from the governments around the world a heightened appreciation for the importance of healthcare but also you know the you know, in some respects, the different areas of healthcare, because actually diagnostics is preventative. You're, that saves a lot of money. You know, it costs billions of dollars or pounds 
to run all those diagnostic tests, which is just the COVID tests, but that saved a lot of money rather than the alternative of, you know, forever going through continued shutdowns and lockdowns and the impact that has on the economy. So, you know, there's an, a greater appreciation of not just healthcare, but which parts of healthcare can actually save money by keeping people out of hospitals. Because as soon as someone gets to the hospital, it's, it's not too late, but, you know, the cost of having someone in hospital overnight and treating them and when someone is seriously sick is significantly higher than if you can preemptively try to, um, you know, give early diagnosis. So I think there's just, you know, from a public perspective and from a, um, a government payer perspective, an increased appreciation for what healthcare can do. And, you know, we've seen that in some of the funding across Europe um, and in the US as well, um, from bodies such as the NIH, you know, for, you know, diagnostics and, and R&D. Um, on the long-term prospects, I mean, I think, you know, I did mention the intro, and, and I think there's this idea that uh, people are going to age and they're going to need healthcare. That feels like it's been a story for a long time. Um, uh, you know, have we gotten to the point where you're kind of seeing this come to fruition, or is this still, uh, you know, farther out? Maybe, yeah, talk about a bit of kind of the long-term prospects for the healthcare industry. Uh, that topic, that structural driver is still very much there. There, you know, there's some very you know, a lot of things very hard to predict, whether it's interest rates or inflation, you know, a recession, who knows, you know, my guess is as good as anyone else's. But you can have a reasonable degree of certainty in demographics and the aging of the population that you, know, you can see the numbers are there. And, you know, some basic numbers from the UN, um, you know, various third parties, you know, just highlight that I think there were 800 million people globally aged over the age of 65. You know, that's a number you can have good confidence in in 2018. And by 2050, so, you know, 30 years away from now, that's going to be 1.5 billion people. There'll be 1.5 billion people over the age of 65. You know, clearly that has implications for the use and demand of healthcare. And that's a key structural driver. And not only are people you know, we're going to have an increased amount of people over the age of 65, but people are also living longer. So, you know, you can just, you know, very you know, comfortably and predictably say that, you know, that will have um, a positive demand on, on healthcare over the coming decades. And, you know, that does underpin the sector and the R&D investments that a lot of the companies are making in the space. Are companies keeping up? Are they keeping up with the pace of innovation? Do they need to innovate faster? Yeah, you like you see this sort of train coming here. Um, are, are are companies able to to meet that demand, um, or is there still kind of a ways to go? Yeah, I mean there are various pockets of um, you know of diseases where there's still unmet need. You know the the clearest example of that is is Alzheimer's, where there's a huge amount of people who are suffering from that, and that has a you know obviously a, a societal impact as well as you know the cost of you know looking after you know the Alzheimer's population or people that may have early onset of that is significant for for governments and payers um, as well as obviously all the associated sort of emotional um, you know stresses that that can cause so you know that's a huge area of unmet need and then just you know last year we had the first breakthrough um, you know, in treatment for for Alzheimer's from Biogen and, and their Japanese partner Isai, and then we've got readouts this year from from Eli Lilly in the US, and and Roche also has um, you know some potential pipeline um, drugs for that, and so you know that's kind of one of 
the, not the last key areas, but a significant area of unmet need. And then we've had other areas of innovation, whether it's for, you know, continued um, improvement in diabetes or obesity as well, which again has a significant societal burden and cost. And um, so companies are continuing to invest a lot of money. We're seeing continued progress on these huge areas of unmet need. And, um, and I think there's still a long way to go in terms of the ability for companies to innovate to, to meet those, um, those needs. So let's talk about your fund for a bit. I mean, uh, you know, any Canadian investor knows that there's not a lot of opportunities within Canada to invest in healthcare. You have to look outside. So um, for Canadian advisors listening in, um, where are those opportunities and uh, how do you kind of um, pick which areas to go to? Yeah, so it's about, you know, globally about 65% of the market capitalization of the healthcare index, which is, you know, the cumulative um, amount of listed companies is in the US. The US really is the center of, of um, healthcare spending, as I said, with 18% of GDP spent on healthcare. And then there's, you know, huge swathes of private um, and public companies which are built up around that to try and address um, you know, the healthcare needs. So, you know, the, the fund and the index has about 65% of its allocation to the US. And then the other key areas are um, really Europe and then some parts of Asia. But what's interesting is although a lot of the companies may be uh, domiciled in the US, they are global companies. You know, we all know J&J is not just a US company, it's, you know, global. Other companies like Abbott, you know, for example, in the US, 42% of their sales are from emerging markets um, or markets around the world. A lot of businesses and companies we own will have to sell 10 to 20% of their sales to China. China is still a very nascent healthcare system with, you know, they spend about 5% of GDP on healthcare. So there's, again, a huge need there for increased spending. Um, so... You know, although a lot of the, the market capitalization and companies are concentrated in the US, it is global by nature and the, the need for um, you know, health services, you know, is, is as widespread as you know, Canada or Asia and, and the UK as well. On the uh, breakdown of the subsectors, where do you have more of an allocation to, you know, to, to the different subsectors? Yeah, so I've got a, the investment philosophy, which I have in terms of running the fund is to identify good quality businesses within healthcare. So I'm not just chasing the really exciting science or the binary risk. I want companies with good track records of organic growth, operating in good end markets, um, companies whose management teams have historically been astute from a capital allocation perspective um, and that generate good free cash flow. Those are you know, some of the key characteristics I'm looking for. And really I find you know, more of those opportunities within areas such as life science and tools, where we have, you know, quite a significant overweight and, um, and medical devices. Um, and, you know, that is, you know, primarily um, funded, as it were, by, by large cap pharma and biotech, because as I said, that's about 55% of the index is large pharma and biotech. We've got a good portion of those in the fund, which gives the fund a really good amount of defensiveness in periods of uncertainty and recession. But there are faster growing, better businesses in more attractive end markets, in my opinion, in areas such as life science and tools. So, you know, do we need to have, um, you know, 5% of the fund in Pfizer? You know, I, I think not. I would rather allocate it to a company like Thermo Fisher, which is growing faster. The duration of growth is longer their ability to deploy capital and generate 
continually high attractive returns is, is there. Um, so so those are kind of some of the areas which I prefer at the expense of pharma. But you know, when I step back and look at the profile of the fund, it then has this good mix of defensive growth. You've got the defensiveness of large cap pharma and biotech, where you still have a third of the fund in that. But then you've got the growth of these picks and shovels in life science and tools, the diagnostic companies, the health insurers, the medical device companies, um, which means that you can continue to keep up with the broader market or hopefully outperform it during periods of growth as well. I mean, it's interesting you say, uh, you know, using defensive in healthcare, where again, sort of in the past, maybe that kind of word wasn't used uh, as much with, with different fund managers and, and investors. Why is that kind of defensive position important in a healthcare fund like yours? Well, it's, yeah, it's a good question. I think it's important as the, um, you know, the cost of capital has materially increased. I think people's risk appetite, whether it's for non-profitable tech or biotech or other areas, has, has really reined in. And so I think when you're looking at, you know, companies with good free cash flow, good dividend yields, um, you know, those are kind of tangible things, which as a as, as an investor and a client, you can actually you can actually get, which I think is important, um, particularly in a world of you know, high inflation. So so I think, you know, those kind of defensive characteristics in highly uncertain markets. And, you know, it was only just over a year ago that the Fed was just retiring the word transitory, you know, in, you know, in, uh, in respect of inflation. You know, the, the Federal Reserve, whose job it is to kind of, um, you know, forecast interest rates and inflation, you know, they were completely caught off guard, as were a lot of investors. So, you know, the, the rate rises, which we saw last year, you know, really does highlight, you know, the uncertainty in markets, the uncertainty in the economy, and, and therefore, conversely, the importance of defensiveness and companies with a sound um, element of predictability. Um, I just want to talk about maybe a couple of the risks um, that have been in the news lately. Supply chain issues have impacted all sorts of industries, but but have impacted the healthcare space. What are you seeing when it comes to supply chain challenges? How has that impacted the space, and has that maybe been resolved over the last little bit? Yeah, supply chain issues have definitely impacted the space, in particular in this era of medical devices, where they haven't been able to pass on those pressures. It's impacted all areas of the market, all areas of healthcare. But you know, medical device companies haven't been able to pass it on in terms of price. Um, it you know, it's been it's not just been supply chain you know, that's impacted you know their ability to source materials, but it's been the inflation and the cost of the materials and the freight. You know, some some of the companies we speak to they've they've had to resort to air freight rather than sea freight just to get the their hands on the products and the materials to finish making their products and get them to their customers. So that's had a huge inflationary impact on their cost base, but that is easing. We can, there are lots of indications um, at a high level or, or bottom up level that those supply chain pressures and the associated costs are easing. So, you know, that can go from being a tail, uh, a headwind to a tailwind for a number of companies. And what about, uh, you know, it's seemingly every time there's uh, some election or, this, you know, there's a, this idea that, that the U.S. might cap drug prices. You kind of mentioned it before. Is that still an issue that you're paying attention to? Um, and how could that impact the sector? 
Yeah, that that's still very very topical. It's an important theme. It's, as you said, it seems to have been around forever, but it's you know it, it continues to be. You know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, which Joe Biden and the Democrats passed, there were provisions within that, importantly, which were focused on allowing the U.S. government and Medicare, in particular, to negotiate drug prices. And that will have a continued downward pressure on drug pricing across the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Um, and that comes in from 2026, uh, with the first uh, sort of list of drugs, you know, being put forward for those drug prices, um, drug price cuts later this year. So it's still relevant. We're seeing continued kind of, you know, pressure on drug prices. And I do think if we go into an election cycle in 2024, we'll probably continue to see that. I, I think it's probably important to highlight that we don't expect a significant overhaul of the healthcare system. We don't expect, you know, wholesale changes to drug pricing. But what we, what we have seen over the last five years and the last year, and what I expect going forward, is a continual, you know, gradual pressure on prices, um, which will, you know, limit the pricing power of pharmaceutical companies. And we've we've already seen that to a large extent. There's also a lot of talk in the news and, you know, you just have to know a nurse or a doctor uh, or a friend and talk about work a bit to find out that they're under a lot of pressure. There's there's issues around staffing. Um, you know, it's all over the world. And um, is that something that you pay attention to? How could that impact the investments that you're that you're looking at? Yeah, that's important. We you know, there's not just, um, you know, staff shortages, but staff burnout, um, you know, particularly with nurses and, and in the US. And that is something which you know, we can kind of track and pay a lot of attention to. And that, you know, that impacts hospitals' abilities to run at, you know, operating theatres um, at full schedules. And so I think even now, you know, 2023, um, hospital utilisation levels are below, only marginally, but, you know, a couple of percentage points below 2019 pre-COVID levels. So we still haven't got back the full utilisation and operating levels in hospitals because of those staff shortages. There are early signs that hospitals are adding beds, um, you know, shortages easing a bit. And, you know, the hope would be in 2023 that we do get, a, you know, maybe even above trend levels of utilization because ultimately, ultimately a lot of the issues which people had um, and the treatments which they need haven't gone away. So, um, you know, I think, you know, there's, um, there's hope that that will ease. And does that, um, you know, encourage companies to be more innovative, you know, to find new ways to make it easier for people to do their jobs and, uh, and you know, make things more productive and efficient? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really important. You know, companies are innovating, not just to improve health outcomes for patients. Obviously, that's the number one reason why they innovate, to try and improve health outcomes. But the second key thing is to help lower the cost of the healthcare system. And you can do that by bringing innovation, which, for example, may be minimally invasive, maybe a minimally invasive surgery technique, which allows a patient to um, to recover quicker, have lower complication rates and get out of hospital quicker. And that's important because that puts less pressure on the hospital system, has less of a cost burden, good for the patient, and it's good for the, the doctors treating them. Great, so we just have, you know, 20 seconds left. Any final words? This is a fascinating discussion. Any final words on uh, on the healthcare space? No, I just think as we, um, you know, as we look forward 2023 and beyond, the structural drivers of the aging population remain absolutely in place. And, you know, the increasing need for healthcare is as strong as ever.
Great. Alex, thank you so much for being here and uh, looking forward to see where all this goes and chatting again soon. Thanks, Yutan. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.